0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Techspansive. I am Sean Dubravac from Avrio Institute.
1: And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research.
0: We have something very special for you in this week's episode. It is our 100th episode, and we wanted to mark that. So stay tuned for uh, what is to come. And uh, before we move to that, though, we wanted to hit on some of the, the big stories from the week. One of which of course is Amazon's announcement that they are acquiring MGM Studios for $8.45 billion. It's their largest acquisition since they acquired Whole Foods in 2017. And in fact, it's their second largest acquisition ever. Uh, it's clear that that Amazon uh, is dedicated to what Amazon Prime can be and what they want it to be. It's interesting that it comes in the same week that uh, the DC attorney general filed antitrust, uh, complaints against, uh, uh, Amazon. So it's, uh, you know, definitely an interesting time for Amazon to be announcing a major acquisition like this while they're under so much scrutiny for using their, their market power in other segments of, of their business.
1: Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. You think about the Whole Foods acquisition and this acquisition, uh, they are really major expansions into two facets of uh, Amazon's business that really were not there at the beginning. Of course, Amazon started out as a pure play online retailer, and Whole Foods really marked its largest foray into becoming uh, a brick and mortar retailer, uh, even though they are doing some other things in that space, like the four-star store and uh, Amazon Go, of course. Uh, but, um, but you know, Sean, we, we were talking a little earlier, and you noted that Amazon already has a very significant uh, presence in Hollywood and, and has been a disruptor here. So uh, what do they really get by the MGM acquisition? Well, a big part of it is back catalog. Uh, and it might be interesting to think about uh, this acquisition versus a uh, an investment in original content uh, which of course you know has been uh, growing into the billions of dollars per year for amazon netflix and and many of the other competitors so uh, they get a very solid uh uh, very solid back catalog Uh, mgm uh, includes for example all all the james bond films there's been such a a focus on Franchises uh, in, in Hollywood over the past few years, we've seen that really come to bear uh, with uh, with Disney Plus uh, and with um, uh, with Harry Potter uh, on uh, on HBO Max. So, uh, so to the extent you can line up uh, as long-running a franchise uh, as as the Bond franchise, uh, that uh, that can really lend a lot to your uh, to th- to the value of, of your streaming offering.
0: Yeah, I think that that this is an investment for Amazon, not only in back catalog, but also in forward catalog. Uh, Without doubt, we'll see more James Bond films and they will land exclusively on Amazon Prime. Maybe they'll have a concurrent theatric release or even perhaps a delayed theatric release where it shows up first on Amazon Prime and then shows up uh, later. Um, We've definitely seen them Release some blockbusters recently on Amazon Prime that they've really touted a- and they've been investing in original content. They've been acquiring content all the way back to 2013 when uh, you know Netflix released House of Cards. Uh, arguably though Amazon has not been as successful as as uh, Netflix or others and so there's definitely a, a desire there I think deep within Amazon to really compete. It's also clear that there's mass consolidation going on in Hollywood. And because everybody is opening up streaming services, all of this back catalog has renewed value. So it's really a great time if you're MGM to sell yourself because you can take all of that, uh, that legacy content and, and, And really get the most value for it because it's going to go to somebody who has a streaming platform, which means it's going to be locked up and become part of uh, that streaming platforms vault, which I I think is a a big piece of what's what's happening here. We even saw, you know, Quibi uh, get acquired, uh, even though they didn't have a lot of content, but we are going to see that content become available. So you you do see uh, the desire to kind of lock up any and all available content and put it on your platform.
1: Speaking of Quibi, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, we we spoke a a bit about how uh, it was acquired as um, one of the real signature or first major content uh, acquisition sets uh, by Roku. And uh, there was a story this week about how uh, Amazon's ad business has uh, been growing so strongly that it is uh, larger than the combined size of Roku's, Twitter's, Pinterest and Snaps put together, not only that, but growing 1.7x uh, as quickly uh, as those businesses, uh, which, as we know, some of them, certainly Roku, uh, has been growing uh, very quickly. So, um, you know, of course, the more content you have, the more uh, options there are for, for advertising. Uh, of course, um, uh, Amazon also owns, uh, you know, we think about Prime Video uh, but they have another streaming service too which is IMDb TV uh which is one of the free uh, ad supported options out there along with uh Pluto and Zumo and Crackle and you know about about half a dozen of them so uh you know this this gives them access to uh you know many assets to either uh launch on IMDb or or put in an IMDb TV uh window
0: do you feel like Amazon is just doing this to keep people on Prime. Uh, now there's clearly a lot of competitors to Prime. Uh, Amazon was really one of the first, uh, at least in a major way, to offer two-day free shipping, and now uh, others have, have matched that. They're working on uh, what I would equate to real-time shipping. Uh, you know, Others might match that. They have a marketplace, but Walmart and others have... Have opened that up and we, you know, we saw uh, continued news this week from instagram how they're opening that up as a as a viable e-commerce platform for for boutique retailers essentially or or others so uh, how much of this is amazon really wanting to be a streaming service versus amazon wanting to continue to be uh, the the retailer for everything
1: yeah i think it's more the former uh, I, I think they already have a pretty strong. Value proposition for Prime, uh, and I think that they have been making more of a push over the past few years to take uh, some of those folks on the Prime Video subscription, the stuff that you get for free uh, as a Prime member, and upgrade them to uh, an offering that uh, you know for which which you have to have a you know for which you have to have a separate subscription uh, payment uh, every month and. Uh, this will uh, would certainly help fuel that. I'm sure some of the catalog will go into Prime Video, but um, you know, but I think they were already in pretty good shape there. I think it's difficult to justify just from that perspective. Uh, you know, you have to use this to either fuel the growth of uh, Amazon Video in the premium tier, or as I mentioned before, uh, IMDb TV, which really has not uh, attracted. Kind of attention, as some of the other ad-supported uh, free streaming services, such as uh, Pluto and Zumo, some of which have already gotten acquired uh, by by other content companies.
0: Amazon definitely faces different economics than, say, a Netflix, which which does see churn churn in its members as people leave because there isn't necessarily a show to watch and then maybe they come back. I think we're going to see that churn with Disney. Disney was able to drive, Disney with Disney Plus was able to drive a lot of members and subscribers because they offered a lot of different promotions in the beginning. Verizon customers were able to get Disney Plus and and some other things like that. And so you, you had uh, a variety of different things happening there. Uh, but I think that they run the risk of, of seeing their members churn away if there aren't new offerings and, and new movies to watch. Amazon arguably has different economics because you do get all of these other things with your, your Prime subscription. And so you might not be wanting to uh, to give that up just because there isn't a new movie to watch because you're still ordering shoes or guitar strings or whatever it is that you're ordering uh you know on a daily basis
1: yeah i i actually think that raises three interesting points one uh, of course amazon has been investing in its x-ray technology uh, over the years which identifies actors and directors inside of video uh it wouldn't surprise me at all for them to start moving that into product uh within within video so you know if you think james bond has uh as a cool car, well, you know, you're probably not going to be able to, to buy that one right off the bat, but uh, you know, that's kind of the direction things are heading in. Uh, second is this idea of having more bargaining chips, right? So as Amazon wants to acquire uh, more third party uh, content from other studios, uh, they say, hey, you know, if you want to have access to the MGM catalog, you need to let us have access to to your catalog. Uh, and the third thing is um uh having more options to um, uh to to perhaps uh do a deal uh with uh with a major carrier such as uh such as verizon or a t and t uh particularly given that all of those guys have recently divested uh their uh media assets uh and so they can't you know they've offered some of them have offered amazon prime uh, the whole service uh, in the past, but, you know, just offering perhaps this premium tier of video, uh, all, you know, it, it may, may be a more affordable option uh, that, uh, that, that some of the carriers can can offer as a value add to their customers to help reduce their churn, uh, just, just as they've done uh, with Netflix over the years.
0: Yeah, I think your point about them using the video to sell more product is interesting, uh, and it would suggest that this what essentially is happening here is vertical integration. That the acquisition is less about an adjacent property, but more about vertical integration. And if if that is the case, then I do think there are antitrust concerns there more so than might appear on the surface. If it this is really a way of uh, of driving sales of physical goods or, or other things that um, that they might want to influence. Uh, in, in our next story, we saw rumors this week of uh, a new Nintendo Switch coming to market, uh, potentially as early as September. And we might hear more about this in advance of and at E3, which will take place in in June. Uh, the the specs right now suggest that this will be a, an upgrade to the existing Switch, that it'll cost more than the 299 retail price of the original Switch. It'll have a faster NVIDIA processing capabilities. It'll have 4K resolution and will have the, uh, I think importantly, the ability to dock to uh, a television so that you can... Uh, play it on on a TV and have 4K experience. So um, now, of course, we've got chip shortages, it seems, in every market. So my gut tells me that this will be in short supply for many, many months. Probably production will start to ramp uh, here soon if it hasn't already begun. But uh, if the uptake is strong early on, it will probably be in short supply and for all of you that are out there trying to get PS5s, you know how that uh, that could feel for many, many months.
1: Well, sure. Uh, you know, clearly the, the shortages have continued, but uh, it's certainly not surprising that a few months after Microsoft and Sony had launched their next-gen uh, home consoles that we would see uh, Nintendo at least refresh the Switch, uh, it was about time, uh, a couple of... Um, Years ago, they launched the Switch Lite, uh, which was a, a less expensive, more streamlined uh, version uh, of the Switch. And uh, this has been, you know, big a big success for Nintendo. Uh, although you could argue that uh, it's been a, a little bit of uh, a double-edged sword, uh, because even though Nintendo has positioned it as this convergence device, which is your home console and your console on the go, uh, it, it seems that the overwhelming majority of use cases is is gaming on the go uh, and i I can totally see the the need that it fills you know it's got a a nice large screen it has of course access to all the Nintendo intellectual property uh, it is a It is an optimized device uh, for younger players it's it's a safe device you know you don't have to worry about constantly being uh, you know con- constantly being um, uh, annoyed to to purchase more uh in game content and downloadable content uh because of uh a lot of the the free to play uh dynamics and so uh so so this has really been their play to to, to bridge uh, both of those uh, g- gaming environments, whereas in the past, uh, they have had separate home uh, and, uh, and portable lines. But again, you know, there's just been such media consolidation and so much competition uh, that uh, I think it's, it's difficult to, uh, to keep that up. And I think it's been difficult uh, for a true handheld uh, gaming platform to, uh, to compete uh, with the smartphone, just because they're they're so ubiquitous now, uh, cloud gaming uh, and the advent of that is an interesting wrinkle. And, and just this week, uh, Microsoft showed off uh, an, an interesting demo. It's actually been in beta for a while, uh, but now it's, it's been released. Where if you are among the uh, uh, the, the few to to have a, a Surface Duo, uh, you can take advantage of the uh, Xbox. Uh, Game Pass uh, with its cloud gaming capabilities to play Xbox games on the Surface Duo. And it, you know, works out pretty nicely because you can use the bottom screen as a, as a gamepad uh, kind of controller, whereas most options for accessing cloud gaming uh, from a smartphone are kind of clunky. Uh, so Microsoft has been uh, very aggressive about implementing touch controls uh, in Xbox games and, uh, You know, if you are a big Xbox fan and love that content catalog, uh, this could be a a reason to look more seriously at the Surface Duo.
0: In other gaming news this week, we saw that uh, Epic and Apple both had their closing arguments, offered their closing arguments in the uh, lawsuit there. So we will see what comes of that lawsuit. But we thought we would do something special for the 100th episode of of Tech And we brought on a special guest.
1: We have got such a special treat for this 100th podcast episode of Tech Spansive. Uh I am so delighted to introduce our our first guest, uh, my old friend, uh, Peter Rojas. Uh, Peter is a partner at Betaworks, uh, where he focuses on investing uh, in social gaming. And uh, you should definitely check out his newsletter, MetaPlay. Uh, we'll be talking a bit about some of the topics he he has been discussing there. Uh, but uh, I first met Peter back in 2003, uh, when an editor at a publication I was working at said, you know, you should reach out to this guy. He started uh, this little blog called uh, Gizmodo. Uh, it's really, you know, starting to attract some mad traffic. Uh, and then, of course, uh, years later, uh Peter would uh go on to uh create Engadget uh where I would uh write a weekly column for uh, almost 10 years yeah. uh which was uh which was a, a great ride so uh so Peter uh thank you so much for for joining us today
2: and thanks for having me and um you know I, I will say that Ross when you reached out um it actually was a uh pretty meaningful to me as a you know blog, I mean, people, blogs weren't respected. Um, Gizmodo was the first gadget blog and and uh, we weren't seen as a sort of respectable uh, publication. Um, and uh, I, I think someone who, you know, with your sort of pedigree and, and coming out of the, um, you know, analyst space, you know, caring and, and, and paying attention was really meaningful to me. And, you know, I've been really... Um, Grateful for the partnership that we've had over the years, and the fact that you were, you know, lent your gravitas to Engadget at a time that we very sorely needed it was, yeah, I mean, that's I, I made also... a really big difference. Uh, and uh, you know, we were trying, we were trying so hard to be taken seriously. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it was, uh, it was fantastic, and uh, you know, I, I certainly enjoyed, uh, you know, the whole run there. Um, uh, such such a great opportunity. Um, but here we are, so many years later. Uh, And so much has uh, transpired uh, in in the world. I think back then, uh, if uh, someone had told us that we would all be running around in in virtual reality, in these uh, environments that seem to be on the verge of um, integrating into real physical reality with uh, a a quality of graphics that... uh, really are, are you know really really mind blowing and and starting to come down to uh, affordable price points, uh we uh we would have um we, we would have responded with a with a healthy degree of uh, skepticism uh but here we are and so uh Peter, you know, as as you look around the landscape, uh what are some of the, the big trends you're 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 seeing in, in social gaming these days?
2: Yeah, um I, I think Uh, you know, one of the, and maybe I I could start by defining at least how I see social gaming. And, um, you know, it's, it's not just multiplayer gaming, it's multiplayer games where um, you have the opportunity to spend, um, let's say, meaningful amounts of time with your friends and with other people. Um, And so there is some sense of there being a virtual world or or space in which you're able to have those interactions. And so, um, you know, I, I don't mean, things like second life, which aren't really games. Um, right. No, and I name. want to get back to
1: that in a minute, but yeah, again, in the sense that we yeah. think
2: about them, um, but the, that, they do have the structure of games and that the structure of the game is actually really critical to the socializing aspect to it of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, because of this social games, uh, are, you know, tend to need to, uh, appeal to the widest number of possible people, um, or at least be a have the widest addressable, uh, uh, number of gamers, so to speak. Uh, and so they, uh, have a, you know, for the most part fundamentally different business models than we've seen with games in the past. Um, I think Fortnite is sort of the, the best example of this where they have, it's a free to play game. Uh, it's not pay to win in any way and, and you can purchase cosmetics and other things to differentiate, uh, your character, but you can't, uh, you know, nothing that you spend money on can help you actually win the game uh but uh the, but it is uh or at least was um a, a a the first game to be cross platform on console desktop and iOS and Android uh and uh and to be able to you know connect people regardless of what their friends had and which was a big change um you know we think about gaming in the past as being you know, if I want to play with my friends, uh, if I wanted to play Call of Duty with my friends, um, we all had, and I had an Xbox, my friends had to have an Xbox, uh, you know, um, or if I was playing on a mobile game, my friends had to also be, you know, on an iPhone. Um, now we're seeing this rise of social games, which by definition need to, uh, be social experiences, which means that you need to be able to have your friends play along with you and your friends don't always have the same hardware. And it, it's, it's really abstracting away the hardware layer in a way that is um, really different and um, challenging for the gaming industry that we've had for the past 30 years or so, 30, 40 and years.
1: And Sean, we, we've we talked uh, quite a bit on the podcast about the level of disruption uh, that you know this is causing in, in the traditional device uh, markets. Um, and it's really come to a head in uh, Epic uh, versus, versus Apple, the trial that... Uh, recently concluded, uh, and we sure got a lot of uh, juicy testimony on on both sides about that.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and Peter, you talked about this in your most recent uh, blog post on on the Epic Apple lawsuit. I I mean, it really was a very fundamental shift and uh, uh, really a phenomenal shift that Epic was able to negotiate these uh, cross-play agreements with so many platforms and really fundamentally uh, change that, and you know when you talk with uh, younger generations when I talk with my kids about this, uh, especially my my youngest son, he fully anticipates that we will exist at some point in a r- kind of ready player one type atmosphere right that he'll go he 'll go to the mall to shop in a virtual space and f- from his vantage point, he sees no reason why hardware would, would matter in that. You, know, you can buy different hardware to, ex, to experience it in a different way, just like they do in, in Ready Player One. Yeah. But at the end of the day, everybody can access that, that universe regardless of what uh, platform they're on. So I think uh, you know, the points you made in, in your blog post are actually really interesting and, and what a significant shift that was for the, for the gaming world.
2: Yeah, I I think it's interesting the ways in which Epic has laid the groundwork for this over I mean the past for I mean decades you know honestly but really especially over the past uh you know 5 to 10 years. The fact is they having a game engine Unreal Engine, right, which can um uh which supports games across mobile and desktop and console was a key part of of the equation there and and really important you know sort of far sighted of them to um you know, think about the ways in which games could be supported on, you know, both mobile and console and desktop, right? And that's something that was seen as, uh, uh, that the markets had seen before as sort of bifurcating, right? You had mobile and you might use, uh, uh, you know, you might use Unity or, you know, or Unreal for a mobile game, but, uh, you know, the work that Epic did to make sure that it was really easy to be able to port a game over, uh, is, is really underappreciated, I think. Um, the stuff they did with, um, you know, their, uh, uh, live ops and the build, the, the services side of this to be able to do, um, cross player across all these different platforms and, and handle, um, concurrency and, uh, you know, a hundred players in a single game and, and have it all work, um, again, across different devices. I don't want to minimize the amount of work and effort that goes into something like that. Um, but then on the, uh, on the business development side, the work that they did to persuade Sony which um, saw opening up cross, you know, console cross-platform play, uh, they saw that as a strategic disadvantage for them. They saw it as, um, you know, if we uh, if we allow PlayStation players to, uh, you know, play games like Fortnite with their friends who are on ex- an Xbox or friends on a Switch or friends on an iPhone, um, we're not going to be able to lock people into our ecosystem in the same way. And you know, it's 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 interesting to see how, um, you know, each each. Everybody wants to sort of own the ecosystem and own the platform, and we see we see how these things come into conflict with one another. Um, and, and this is really at the heart of the Epic versus Apple, um, you know, dispute, which is Epic sees itself, you know, as the platform, right, with Fortnite, and so you know they can't take a thirty percent tax on um, creators making and selling things within Fortnite, and then Apple also taking a thirty percent tax, and then also all the other sort of you know expenses and fees that go into it, and so you know i i i referenced roblox's s1 and some of their filings uh, and things that they've they've shared and um you know the reality is that it's it's hard it's a pie that can only split so many ways and uh you know creators um with roblox get uh actually less money than apple does um for the creations that there when when someone buys a, a an experience or buys a virtual good in roblox um, the entity that take the, the apple takes more of that than a crater um i think it 's like you know it 's like twenty four point nine percent and twenty five point one percent or something like that um, I should have those numbers memorized but uh, um, but my point is that you know epic is looking to a future where the layer that 's the most important is their their layer that cuts across all these different platforms whereas apple still sees it as you know, well, our platform is the most important one. Our ecosystem is the place where the players should pay, pay the, you know, where the tax should be collected. And um, these things are, are intractable in some sense. Um, at some point, um, you know, for the the industry as a whole to grow, we're going to have to resolve this and figure it out. And um, I think Apple's going to come down a little bit and for uh, Epic will concede something, but the fact that they were willing to go up against Apple and sacrifice Fortnite on iOS to make this point um, means, you know, signifies how important it was to them, and also uh, highlights how Epic was one of the few companies that was positioned to do this. They were not entirely dependent on mobile for their revenue, um, but it was significant enough for them to fight over it. And there's not that many companies in that position right now. Roblox, for example, makes so much of its money from mobile that they couldn't pick this fight because their business would there wouldn't have been a $40 billion IPO this year, right? If they had picked a fight last year with, uh, with Apple over this and been kicked off iOS. Um, so, so in a way Epic, and I, and I think this is in part fuel, fueled by Tim Sweeney's, um, this being more than just about money for Tim Sweeney, uh, that, you know, they are willing to make this point and fight this fight because in the long run for social games, and these sort of metaverse-based experiences, whatever you want to call them, to be successful and to be places where people can make money and, you know, uh, create economies, you have to figure out. You can't have it so that you can't have the mobile platform taking 30% and then the metaverse platform taking 30% um, because it just doesn't leave enough money left over for, you know, the creators.
1: And and I think there's been a a few things there. So we have heard pretty similar rationale in terms of uh, the conflict between, for example, Apple and Spotify, you know, in terms of what is left over in in order to pay creators uh, after uh, the platform vendor takes its cut. Uh, And uh, it also helps explain why, you know, to your point, uh, Epic was willing to to poke the bear uh, because it had uh, uh, had really impressive success uh, in getting Sony and uh, Microsoft to uh, relax uh, some of the rules. You go into some of the interesting implications of what uh, this is going to mean for uh, Xbox, uh, X Cloud, and and some of the the uh, Xbox subscription uh, services in that. Again, you know, for free to play to work, you kind of have to circumvent uh, that yeah. uh, because you want to access the uh, the, the greatest number of uh, of gamers. I also, Peter, found it really interesting your point about all the services that Epic provides uh, for developers because I think that was really one of the undercurrents of the trial. Uh, Epic going after Apple, saying what what are you doing you know what are you, what are you doing for this 30% you know you, you say yeah. you're you're making it a, a safe environment for everybody out there but look you know here here's a few examples of where things slipped by you uh, and and that's why it was really important for them to argue about the consistency or, or you know sometimes deviations from the consistency and even getting tim cook to say hey we're not perfect you know we're, yeah. we're going to make mistakes
2: i think it's one of the challenges of of where apple is at right now um and i sort of lump google in there a bit as you know with um mm-hmm. play store but um is that we're now i i guess about a decade plus into the app store right uh and um the rules that they the rules of the road that they set out they've obviously changed a bit over the years but um you know a lot of the things that they um the the the, the tech the world that they were designed for doesn't exist anymore um, I mean the cl- cloud-based applications were I mean few and far between at the time right uh, and uh, a lot of the um, the the things that that uh, uh, you know the idea of a lot of things being cross-platform for example um, largely didn't exist or at least didn't mm-hmm. exist in the same sorts of ways and um, you know there are issues around um, you know the sort of anti steering rules that that Apple has right which is you can't you um, you know if you're netflix or spotify you can't um point someone towards another way to pay um you know even if that exists if that exists, that's fine but you can't point someone towards another way of doing right, that
1: right. and then the uh, judge uh, got on them a little bit yeah the judge about,
2: got, yeah. it was it was kind of fun to see the judge um you know highlighting that um and uh uh i i am if i had to guess I, look i have no idea where this court case is going to go honestly like i i wasn't sort of being you know, cute when I said I, I I really don't know how it's going to turn out. <laughs> um, but I suspect that Apple is going to probably um, introduce an o- a big overhaul of App Store policies and probably will introduce some sort of um, cut or differentiation in the pricing. Um, I also don't think it's... I, one of the the things, and I think the judge did start to mention to talk about this a little bit, and, and Epic brought it up as well, is this issue around um, free apps, essentially paying almost nothing um to be on the subsidy argument yeah and so um if you think about like i mean how much money you know do people spend buying things in the amazon app right the physical goods um uh, amazon is very careful not to allow people to purchase kindle books and things like that uh and and uh you know digital media and virtual things in the virtual goods in the amazon store um but amazon essentially free rides um you know it's just it's just one example and you know you could imagine an overhaul, which said, okay, look, this is, you know, having a presence in our platform is really valuable. And so we're going to charge rent, so to speak. Um, and it's going to, you know, if you are a company with X, you know, yearly revenues, like it costs you this to have an app in the app store or something, you know, something. And I suspect that Epic would be probably fine. I don't think it's that they want to pay nothing, Right. I think it's that they feel like that what they pay right now is untenable Mm -hmm. and also puts them at this, you know, competitive disadvantage with, with, with others, um, uh, with other models. And certainly, you know, Microsoft um, not being able to introduce an xCloud app, um, you know, feels like they're not able to fulfill their vision for where they want to take gaming, which is a premium subscription model, right? A Netflix type model. And so um, uh, I don't, again, I don't know exactly where it goes, but I think this 30% model, which applies to like this one subset of transactions that happens, um, which there's you know 1,900 different uh, exceptions and carve outs. <laughs> um, I think if you were starting over today, you would start with probably something that looked more like, um, you know, everybody pays something. Um, if you are a you know developer with no money, it, you pay just this sort of year small yearly developer fee, which Probably looks like what they have now, and if you are a big huge company, if you are a Facebook or Google or Amazon um, or Netflix, um, you know you can pay uh, you pay some larger amount and and i 'm just spitballing here, right but yeah, uh, no, you know, you. but but uh, but the thirty percent doesn 't apply uh, you know in most cases
1: right but um, you know some of those big big brands you know some of the, some of those big companies the paradox is that even though they have ample revenue uh, to, to cover some of those costs, uh, they're also going to be some of the fiercest, or some of the most formidable challengers uh, to, to the Apple model. You know, we, we saw that with Facebook uh, and the, um, you know, the free gaming service that yep. uh, they put, you know, Apple put the kibosh on. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and, and so, you know, I wrote a column a while back uh, arguing that cloud gaming was really more of a threat to the app store model than uh, than the particulars are, are around Fortnite uh, yeah. it it is you know technically possible to circumvent uh the app store through i think uh, Nvidia GeForce Now uh, yeah. and get Fortnite back on the uh, on the platform so you know it's been kind of this uh little you know, whispery thing in the background. You know, oh, you know, you don't, you don't have to do that if, if you know, if you just do this. You know, if you if you just use this shortcut. Um, so, to to what you know, at what point do do more developers, uh, maybe even beyond gaming, say, uh, you know, you you can we can go through the browser. Uh, and you know, to your point about Microsoft, uh, that's how they're going there. That's how yeah. NVIDIA is going there. That's how. Uh, Amazon is going there with its gaming service. Um, is you know, Apple just kind of like creating this this pathway toward everybody going going to the cloud. And and you know, what at what point does does that become feasible, if ever?
2: Yeah, I think the the funny thing about it is if you go back, Steve Jobs re- initially resisted having an app store. That's right. He
1: wanted everything tablet. to be a web app.
2: That's he wanted idea. everything to be a web app. And I remember uh, complaining about this to, I had to to some extremely hardcore, uh, Apple fanboys, uh, (laughs) when I said, well, I, I I have a native Gmail app on my, you know, my trio or whatever, uh, which (laughs) I did. Uh, and, um, and say, well, you know, you could just install a web app and it's just as good. And it it wasn't as good. Um, uh, and obviously they've gotten a lot better and, and, uh, um, but I think that Apple still, um, uh, hamstrings the what can be done with the browser. They certainly don't allow, uh, they certainly give themselves access to a better um, version of, of Safari than they mm. give to, to third-party developers. Um, in terms of the rendering engine, there are some noticeable differences there. There are some private APIs that, that developers don't get access to. Um, but I also think that they are, now they have this weird perverse incentive to um, to hinder development of the browser and capabilities of the browser, in order to to preserve their um, Apple ecosystem and the revenue that they generate there, and I think that that in the long term is not just bad for everyone. I think it's actually bad for Apple too. Um, you know, given the how important the web is um, in terms of our you know mobile experiences, and um, again, I think in the long run they would be better off um, finding ways to make it you know easier for people for big companies and small companies to be able to do these things as apps. Uh, and um, and at least find some way to monetize that, then to um, and, and then allow like web development to you know move forward and, and you know improve as well. Um, then this thing where where they have all these perv- having all these perverse incentives to keep their t- their product worse than it could be strikes me as very unApple in the long run. <laughs> uh, and um, and not that they haven't done it and aren't doing it right now, but I think in the long run, I think it's going to hurt them and um you know i mean google uh, for all its faults has been more open about this stuff i mean you know i have the side loaded um epic you know app on my android phone and and play Fortnite there um, even though it's not in the play store anymore uh and um and that's fine and i think that it's not perfect and it certainly shuts out a lot of you know users who um, struggle with side loading and and things like that and there are some security risks but um but google isn't trying to make Chrome a second class citizen on mobile um for the most part <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm for sure some opinions will differ on that and, and where you know p w a is and uh, and all that um but I think that it's 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 a market difference from uh uh from apple and 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 where they're at and and I think that this is what the the trial has has really exposed is how much Apple has twisted themselves into knots that they themselves are struggling to make sense of an untangle. And look, it's their platform. They can do whatever stupid things they want to do with it um, at at the end of the day, I guess. Um, But it seems like we're at a place where we're getting things that are worse for consumers, worse for the industry and worse for Apple. And I don't understand. I mean, you know, there's a lot of game theory where everyone does the thing that seems right for them. We end up with worse outcomes, but uh, this can't be, I, I can't imagine that this is where Apple wants to stay.
1: But but it's, it's just hard to argue against that when they're, you know, raking in record numbers of cash and promoted every opportunity, how big the checks are that, that they write to developers.
2: Yeah. um, But ultimately, I mean, the thing that really makes the money is selling iPhones and I I just, it feels short-sighted in this way to like prioritize this one small um, part of their revenue in the grand scheme of things versus the other big giant thing. And, um, I mean, they could. have af- I mean, in theory, they could afford to make the the you know to take no fees from the app store, sure. and um, they would still do fine. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, the to me the irony is that the the seventy thirty split completely arbitrary was originally designed to incentivize developers onto the platform, right to to give them. Uh, money and the opportunity to uh, to take home part of the the value add, and yeah. and Apple argued that their thirty percent keep was just about the the value add that they were were providing. I think to me the the light that's really uh, that comes out of the Epic Apple lawsuit is that uh, the value proposition has changed, and and who's adding value to that social gaming experience? Uh, you know, Apple used to argue that it was it was them. And I think that's a much harder argument for them to make. Now. I think it's a much harder argument for them to make that says, Hey, we're, we're rewarding developers. When you look at how many, how many apps they uh, they are quick to tout that they delete from the, the store that they don't allow, you know, they're quick to say, Hey, we're, uh, we're really trying to police this, you know, and, and that's now their value add is being uh a, uh, what is essentially a monopolist, right? They're policing their their environment and their platform, uh, and so to me, the the economics have shifted on them. the The reason for the 70-30 split has changed, and uh, the result should be greater creativity. And I think Peter, you're getting at that a little bit. Like, come up with a different value proposition. Come up with a different way of uh, of of providing value. And um, and then monetize that. And so maybe you're looking at like a retail environment where, you know, the retail stores that make more pay more. Maybe yeah. it's, it's something else, but there's a, a different way of approaching that.
1: Yeah, and, and Sean, I'm sorry, Sean, you know, we, we've spoken on the podcast a lot about Apple's future interest in health based services. We're starting yeah. to see a little bit of that. Uh, you know, games are certainly uh, you know the money maker on mobile today. But it's clear that what this is really about is setting a precedent for them to move into all kinds of uh, of transactions. You know, they're they're dabbling in health, they're dabbling in financial. Obviously, they're looking to grow their presence there.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And and um, look, I, I think that you know any reasonable sort of observer would say the fact that the I store, the Apple Store, uh, was closed environment right that it had um you know the things around security and payments um were absolutely critical for you know for bringing regular people into uh into onto mobile and having them feel comfortable spending money right and and people being able to build platforms um i'd say that uh uh and 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 so you know i'm i wouldn't argue that oh it should just be completely open Mm -hmm. And, uh, anybody should be able to do whatever they want. Right. Um, there, there are some genuine security and, and, fraud reasons for, for having, um, you know, at least ha- having, having Apple do, you know, do what it does. And I think that like they have creative value for developers and, and certainly for end users as well. Right. Um, I'm not gonna argue against that. Um, I, I think what I, what I keep coming back to is this idea that, um, if we were starting over, if we were starting from scratch, we would just have a different, we would have a different system. And we would try to incentivize it. I would try to say, what do we want to, what is our goal now? Because our goal isn't get people comfortable using, you know, making, spending money on their phone. <laughs> um, we're past that point now. Now it's, it's, um, you know, to Sean's points, like how do we enable like this next generation of creators to be able to, um, you know, create a livelihood using their phone? Um, uh, there's a, a great, um, uh, post by I think it was from Lee Jin from Atelier Ventures, uh, where she talked about how um, the App Store model is making it really difficult for independent creators to make money because um, you know there some things like even like the $999 limit on purchases on the iPhone it sounds like a really high threshold, but um, it's not for certain kinds of things and certain kinds of creators, right? And the, the work they're trying to do, and that cut um, makes it really hard for people to. Um, you know, to monetize their audience, to charge their audience on the platform where people are consuming the content. You have to do these sort of workarounds. And it's one reason why things like, um, you know, Substack and OnlyFans and and these other places have become, you know, popular because there are ways that you can monetize your audience that you have um, and you have to, and, and you, you move them off platform, so to speak. right? And it's a weird missed opportunity for both the creators and for Apple because if Apple made it easier um. For and, and more uh, uh, reasonable for creators to monetize their audience, you know, on platform, so to speak, creators would just do that. Uh, so uh,
1: and- we're seeing a little bit of that with them getting into the podcast stuff after yep. all the, these years. Uh, you know, your your point about the nine ninety nine limit, I I believe that was implemented uh, in response to the I am rich app, yep. uh, and and it, it just comes back to your point, Peter, which is. Look, they pioneered this model. They have done extremely well with it. But do they get to, or should they, you know, either from a public policy perspective or from an Apple internal business perspective, continue with it in perpetuity, uh, and and not, you know, make changes in in recognition of how the world has changed?
2: Yeah, they're they're going to have to change. <laughs> uh, and like, and, and and I think if they. Um, do i think there 's an interesting argument which is if they they do not if the market if does if there's not enough market pressure for them to change then then kind of by definition they 're a monopoly perhaps mm-hmm. um, and so um that's it 's an interesting uh and I think this is something that the judge is going to be sort of weighing is that um it seems like Apple has lagged in making changes that seem way overdue right. And if they're not doing those things because they don't feel the market pressure to do so, does that mean they're a monopoly? like i'm not an expert in this law, and so um i think uh there's a lot of probably a lot of good case law that indicates that that doesn't matter you can you know you can you can burn down your own business <laughs> if you want to um but uh you know i i i do i do feel for um for for developers which are feel like you know there are things that they want to build and that they can't build them because of um because of this stuff it's not it's not, not it's not a technology issue it's not a, right. a it's not a design problem it's not a, a product market fit problem it's a um you know it, it's that you know they can't give creators um pay creators what they're worth um because of of the the way the pie is being sliced
1: well peter we we've certainly appreciated your you helping us with our creation today uh, thank you again so much for joining us, and uh, uh, I, I hope we can have you back uh, real soon. There's, there's yeah, so much and- more I wanted to discuss. <laughs>
2: no, anytime. Like, uh, like I said, uh, uh, be careful what you wish for, because I will <laughs> go on at great length. But um, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Well, thanks again, Peter, for joining us. We look forward to having you back soon. I know our listeners would love your, uh, your insights and your expertise. That will wrap it up for this week's episode of Tech Spansive. Again, I am Sean Dubravac, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubravac.
1: And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks for listening.